At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the 520th episode of the Sales Podcast. I'm Weshe for the Sales Whisperer, your host. Today we have Mr. Puyan Salehi, a smart guy, entrepreneur, left Apple on his own to do his own thing, had an interesting turn of events. I won't steal the thunder, but I lived a very similar experience in my sales and entrepreneurial journey. Uh, he's the founder of a company called Scratchpad, and they are hiring, in case you were wondering. Um, so a great interview, great guy, um, really good story. Uh, his history is relatable. Uh, it's inspiring. So um, the interview is ready. It's keyed up. Uh, I'm looking for another sponsor. So if you know a sponsor, hit me up. I am fresh from our vacation. It's nice being in Newport Beach, you know, an hour and 15 minutes from home. Didn't have to worry about airline delays and all that stuff, but I do have a couple trips coming up in later this month, August, um, speaking in Orlando in September. So I hope those all go well. Probably go back out to Texas in September, see my mama. You know, it's what I do. So, um, but otherwise, I'm back in the saddle, getting after it. So enjoy this episode with this great guest, Puyan Salehi. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Thank you very much. I, I have a short attention span, man. I'm a salesman, all right? Uh, co-founder, uh, CEO of Scratchpad, all the way from Minnesota. Welcome to the Sales Podcast. How the heck are you? I'm great, Wes. Thanks for having me. Uh I love your background. I love founders. I love people kicking things off. Um, you, I mean, golly, I'm scrolling through your history. Um, Apple uh, created a company acquired by PayPal, created a company acquired by Wishpond. Now you're Scratchpad and you're hiring. So we're going to be linking to that, scratchpad.com slash jobs. Uh, what the heck, man? How, how many things you going to found, huh? Shouldn't you be retired by now? Go fishing or something like what, what the heck? What yeah. I, I, I joke and say I'm basically, uh, unemployable and that's why I have to keep doing, keep doing this. Um, uh, amen. But no, it, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something I just enjoy doing so much. And, and by, by it, I mean, building and creating yeah. um, and, it's been a crazy journey, 10 years of, uh, you know, lots of ups and downs, more downs and ups mm-hmm. uh, along, along that ride and, and some pretty steep cliffs we've gone off of and had to climb back up. But I think the, just the way, you know, I'm wired and, and I'd say my co-founder and our team is wired is uh, we, we just really enjoy that process. And it's less about the, uh, any specific outcome, but more around the way that we spend our time and I mean, just being challenged and, and trying to create something that um, that's meaningful in the world. So, I mean, you have a unique background from an entrepreneurial standpoint. We don't always see a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur. I mean, are you, 
are you unique in that way or are there a lot of creative um, analytical types out there? No, I, I'd say there are. Um, I, I'd say what might be even more interesting is mechanical engineer that's now doing a software startups in the, <laughs> in the hardware world. But I, you know, a lot of folks I know as well that are entrepreneurs, I mean, on the, the variety of backgrounds is, is really interesting. And for me, my drive to go study mechanical engineering was more a curiosity of just how things worked. I always loved, you know, breaking things apart and taking things apart to understand the mechanics behind them and how they worked. And in that way, I can it just help me view the world in a different lens. And I, I kind of knew I didn't really want to be an engineer, but I still was drawn to it and, and studying it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in what I learned in my time at Apple um, was how important hardware is in the world. And I think there's actually a big, big push now on hardware startups and a lot of them getting funding. Uh, but I just became really fascinated with the impact that software could have because you didn't have the limitations uh, and slow deployment of, uh, of hardware. Uh, and so that's why I slowly started gravitating towards that. So you were at Apple right when the iPhone was being released, huh? I joined Apple before the iPhone was released. Yeah. So when I was going through the interview process and, and I accepted the offer to join, I didn't know that there, there would be an iPhone coming. And then shortly after um, I joined, I started working, um, working on components for the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Because it, it came out in, in 2007, right? Yeah. And that's right. When you start in September 07? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how was that? I mean, do they just dump it in your lap? You know, is it is it as much of a sweatshop as we've heard? Or is it, was it cool? <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was super cool. Um, it's, you know, what I found was a group of folks, and I was on the operations side, um, but it was a group of people that were, just incredibly driven. And I think, so that drive combined with trying to achieve something that really hadn't been done before on a scale that hadn't been done before is what led to folks. Yeah. People were working really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, and I, I was one of them and not just, you know, late hours, but also lots of, uh, especially on the operations and supply chain side or supply chain side, lots of trips, uh, sometimes very last minute, to uh, to the the manufacturing facilities or dealing with fires here and there, but it, it came from I think this 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 drive that a lot of the folks had there, and I think that was just embedded in the culture and in the values that they have. What did you take from them that you've applied that you would say has helped you in in your various entrepreneurial ventures? Um, a lot, and I remember. The well, one I, I think there there was a there's a gentleman there um, on the leadership team who who I really learned a lot from just by being in the meetings and, and watching, you know how he led the team and uh, his name is Jeff Williams, um, and I, I think just his leadership style and, and the precision of the questions that he would ask that would really step make you step back and think and. You know, it, it was the type, and, I, and I've seen that now across certain investors we've worked with as well, but, you know, they're, they're ones that don't feel the need to fill up the space by talking a lot. Uh, but when they do and they ask the right questions, they're, they're the ones that really, they hit you hard in, in, in a really good way and, and make you step back and, and reframe how you think about certain things. 
So I think that that's one thing I certainly took, but also um, the level of attention to detail that the company puts on pretty much everything it does is, is pretty spectacular. And I think that's certainly something that we do now at, at Scratchpad, even though we're in a completely different space, right? We're, we're building software that helps salespeople do their jobs better. Um, but in, in a certain way, that attention to detail is so important because as you know, any, any salesperson that, that might be listening here, you know, like working with the existing tools that are available to you today are, are pretty, it's pretty frustrating. Because um, that level of attention to detail just isn't there to help you do your job well. And so that results in having to switch tabs a ton and endless clicks and slow load times. Um, so I think those are the two things that, that I really took away and, and, and try to apply. So I, I love trying to get down to the nitty gritty on how somebody made the shift mm-hmm. um, to being on their own. So you go from a, a mega company um, you know, arguably the world's premier company um, to doing your own thing. And, you know, what was that runway like? You know, did you, were you doing this on the side at night, you know, for a while till you were comfortable? Did you just take a leap? You know, like how did that, how did you make that transition into owning your own business? Yeah, so I wasn't um, I wasn't working on Scratchpad when I left there, but I yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story because I kind of it feels like I, I left and, and hit a brick wall um, right after right after I left. But you know, I, I knew um, I knew that I wanted to do something on my own. I wanted to be more you know have a bigger impact. My time at Apple was great, um, and I actually ended up staying there longer than I thought I would. Uh, given all the things I just said, but, you know, I finally found um, some folks that I thought was aligned with, that was working on something interesting. And I was like, Hey, I think I could help. I joined them as an advisor. And, and finally got to the point where I was like, you know, I, I think it makes sense to do this um, and, and leave to do this. And it was never, the, you know, it wasn't the right time. And, and I think for a lot of folks, it's ne- there never is a right time to start something. There's always a reason not to. And, you know, just for some personal context, like at that point, you know, I'd come out of, was only a couple years out of business school, still paying down debt from that. My wife was uh, one year into law school. So continuing to rack up debt on that. And it didn't make sense financially to leave at that point and start something. Um, But I said, you know, it's, there never is a right time. If I don't do it now, then I'll probably just get more comfortable and more comfortable here. And I'm just the type where if, if I'm comfortable, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, so I need to be in that, to have a little bit of that discomfort. But what was crazy is I remember I left Apple on a Friday, um, was joining my co-founders on that following Monday. So not, not taking any time off. Uh, but Sunday night at around 8.30 p.m., I found out my wife was pregnant with our first child and in law school. And, you know, going from having a stable paycheck, not a huge one, but you know, a decent one and health insurance to basically getting almost nothing at a startup with uncertainty. Um, But that was kind of a a key moment for me of saying, hey, you know, how committed are you um, to wanting to go down this path? And, uh, and obviously, looking back, I I did. And, um, and it wasn't easy. But but I think that was that was a pretty rough night <laughs> thinking about, Hey, do you go back and say, Hey, oops, sorry, I made a mistake. And, 
uh, you know, excited to come back or, or keep going. And, um, and I just kept going. Nice. Well, we have seven kids and I was on unemployment when two of them were born. We have moved houses and or states <laughs> and jobs like simultaneously several times. Uh, I remember it was 2004 coming up on President's Day. And I knew my job was at risk. I was in a technology company and it had just been four years of hell. Just restructure, restructure, layoff, layoff. And I told my wife, I'm like, I'm like, ah, this is my job's at risk, right? It just was. And, uh, and she was like, at the same time, she said, I might be pregnant, you know, and this was going to be our fifth. So she, she knew the, she knew how it went. right? And I got a, email from my boss on a month on a holiday we had president's day off for whatever reason and i'm like that's not good my boss wants to talk on a holiday yeah my wife was setting up a little picnic in the front yard uh and and i took the call he said yeah we're having to let you go it gave me a big severance so it was it was amicable uh i walked outside and because uh, the joke was, oh, if we move or I get laid off, then you're definitely pregnant. And I walked outside and I said, you're pregnant. She said, you got laid off. <laughs> she just, <laughs> just knew. It's like, yeah. Oh, well, you know, you keep on keeping on. Right. I mean, exactly. What- exactly. And I think that um, that's why it's, you know, that my, my journey into it was was, a, you know, kind of punch to the, the face and gut right at the same time. Yeah. That's cool. So, um, so you, you had some, some folks you were consulting with, like how long that was stack mob, right? So yeah. how long had that been around? Was it still pretty new? No, that was still really new. Uh, and, and there was a whole thesis we had around making, you know, application development was taking off mobile app development was taking off. And, you know, this was still very early in the, um, yeah, 2010. In right? the mobile days, yeah, exactly. And and so the thesis was there'll be more mobile app developers. Not all of them are going to want to set up backend infrastructure. So what if you had a Heroku style um, infrastructure as a service for mobile app developers? Which I think was a was a really interesting thesis. The, the reality was there just weren't many mobile app developers that were making much money. No one had stuff to pay, so it was hard to build a business on it. So no one in that space. And there's a few companies that, that started around the same time in that space. No one really made it. Um, there just wasn't much there. Yeah. And, and so from that journey, then, you know, stepped back and, and reflected a bit and then partnered up with my current co-founder who I've been with now for almost a decade. And we've been through multiple companies and products and, and stuff together. But I think that's when I got a lot more clarity around wanting to work on products or problems where uh, design had a big impact on how people work. And so that's where we came more towards solving problems around workflow and productivity. And, um, you know, it, it was hard to articulate then, but I think we're able to do it a little bit more now. And it wasn't, it wasn't that we were passionate about building technology for sales or salespeople. It's just that we started building a lot of empathy for it because no matter what we built, we had to sell. And we had to learn to be salespeople and then combine that with our 
experience building product and looking at it through the lens, you know, critical lens of design, then that's when we started saying, hey, what if we started solving some of our own problems? And that's what put us down this path of actually building products that solve problems in the in the revenue space. Yeah. Um, how did you know it was time to sell? Did they make you an offer you couldn't refuse? No, I mean, listen, that, <laughs> no, it's it, like I said, that, that company, and I'd left before the, that actual transaction had, had happened, but it, it was, you know, you kind of know, and it's like it, it, the equivalent I've, I've heard is, is usually I think salespeople on, on a, at any company have a sense before anybody else, because you just know, like if, if it's harder to, if it's becoming harder and harder to close those deals, if, or even create the opportunities, if, if things just aren't moving and it's really hard, something's not right. Um, I mean, listen, building a company and selling is never easy, but you should feel like you have some tailwinds uh, behind you. And if you don't have any, then that's uh, that's a problem. Yeah. So it was it was more of y'all had kind of stalled versus y'all were on this huge launch and and they picked you up. On yeah. I, and I, like I said, I think it was just the whole space. Like no one in that space was really, um, it's not like companies were lining up to solve this problem. Yeah. And so I think you could look at it more as a, as a structural challenge. So my oldest, he's 24. And I remember it was about eight years ago, roughly. So he was in high school uh, he had an iPhone and, and I was like frustrated, you know, cause he wouldn't answer his phone. <laughs> I was like, why? why have a phone, right? Why am I, why do you have this fancy thing? If you, if you don't answer it, he said for the apps, right? And he's a smart kid. And then it was just like, it was so just matter of fact and, and almost like disgust, you know, like for the apps. And I was like, Oh hell. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Gotcha. I need to look into this. I mean, it was just a, this light bulb moment, right? I mean, the world was changing like right then and there. Exactly. Um, so you, you decided to stick with the entrepreneurial route. I mean, is it, do you get to the point where you just become unemployable you just got to go keep doing your own thing <laughs> on your own thing? <laughs> I, I think so. No, it's, there are lots of times um, on this journey where, where I think I saw the, the exit signs for, you know, maybe go, go back or get a job. And, and I actually think that that experience is helpful to go um, to maybe go see things at a, at a larger established company, or even a, at a, maybe perhaps another startup that has product market fit, get some ideas and, and then come back. So I, I just, what ended up happening is finding, I think finding a team that works well together is one of the hardest things to do. And we just, I just ended up in a situation where, you know, I'd met my, my current co-founder and we had a, we had a good thing going and it felt like, you know, we're one, we're able to work together, but two, we're, we're able to complement each other's skill sets. And, and I think it's hard to give that up and, and say, you know, maybe things aren't working great just yet. And we haven't found the right problems to solve, but you know, had seen enough of other um, other startup founders relationships just completely fall apart. And I think if a lot of companies die because of implosion um, and usually it's people issues and, and the founding team or executive team just not getting along. And so we had that. And I think that's really what what kept 
me going at this and saying, you know what, like that's really hard to, to find just there are many problems out there in the world. I think we just got to get better at uncovering them and, and building empathy for them and learning, learning about them and figuring out which ones we actually want to tackle. Um, and, and plus it's just, it's something I enjoy. I, I, I like it a lot. It's, it's, it's the way I'm wired and, and the types of problems that I like to solve. So um, the hard part is there isn't much in terms of finances that come with it, but I think, so you've, you've got to find a way to make that work, but yeah. you know, it's trade-offs all around. So how, how do you decide like what to pursue and how do you know that it's viable? Right. It's um, mm-hmm. like I'm working with my, my second son in uh, a little side business and he'll come, he'll come to me and he's frustrated. Something's not working the way it should, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, there's an opportunity. You know, like if it was easy, everybody would do it. You know, the reason there's money in what we're doing is that there are inefficiencies in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm like, try to see how to grow, how to leverage that you know, rather than get frustrated by it. Uh, but how do you know, I mean, you've, you've started multiple businesses now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to design something. It's hard to launch something. It's hard to monetize something. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you know that the, a, a problem is worth solving? That's a great question. And, and I think the, the, what, what you said is, is one of the most important is worth solving because there's lots of problems out there that sh- you could argue should have a solution and, and some do, but they just don't get out to market because they're just not worth solving. They're not something that there's a market for people are willing to pay for, even though it's a, it's a problem that exists. And so it's a, it's something that's really hard to do. Um, people have wasted many years of their lives pursuing problems that, just weren't worth solving, you know, even though they were real problems. I've, you know, we've been guilty of that. And so one thing that we continued to do with each idea we went after, each problem we, we, um, we pursued was, was get better at looking for that signal. And we started almost backwards with each product that we, we tried to develop. We waited as long as we possibly could until we developed any part of the product. And what that allowed us to do and it forced us to do is actually try to get some signal on the market first. And so what that means is try to sell it before you even have anything. And especially in the software world, but I feel like even in, in, in well, hardware is a little bit different, but let, let's just stick with software. There's so many great tools out there now where you can put a functioning design together to be able to tell a story and have somebody understand what it is you're actually trying to do and what impact it could possibly have. And so I would argue if anyone's out there trying to do this now, start with that. You don't need to build the product at first. See if you can generate any demand from it. Can you tell a story that resonates with folks where people are like, yeah, that's interesting. Tell me more. Or all the way up to possibly even selling an advance before you even have the product. I mean, that's the ultimate signal right there is if you find that you are able to articulate a problem and a solution behind it that resonates so well that somebody's willing to part ways with their dollars to, um, to get it in advance. Not, you don't actually have to do it. Obviously, you can just say, okay, great. Like, thank you for having that, that conviction, that support. Um, we're, we haven't fully developed it yet, but that's the ideal. 
So I know, I know you went to business school and I, I got this on my desk right now, the personal NBA and uh, Josh Kaufman is not a fan of MBAs. <laughs> are you, are you glad you did it? I am. I know there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of MBA bashing that goes on and, um, and I, and I could see, you know, it, it's, I, I find it entertaining, but you know, for me, it, it helped, it helped me personally a lot. Cause I think, it, you know, I had that sense of curiosity. It's for the same reason I studied engineering. Like it was to understand how things worked. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. And my reason for going um, and getting an MBA was I, I didn't feel like I had a great sense of how the business world worked. And so it was really driven by that, that sense of curiosity. And I, you know, I grew up in a, in a family business and we had, so I, I felt like I understood business at a more of, of that level, but it certainly helped me connect a bunch of dots together and, um, and, you know, learn some really interesting frameworks that, that I applied to, to everything that I'm doing now, um, even finding the right co-founder to work with. And so yeah, I, I was a fan. Now, that, whether that means you should actually go get your MBA or not, I don't know. I think that's more of a personal decision. A lot of that content is readily available online. Um, and I think one of the other elements of, of a program is the, the, the people you meet, the connections you make, you know, going through that experience together. So, yeah, for me, it was, it was a net positive. I'll do it again. So how did Scratchpad come about? Um. I'll disappoint you and say it wasn't a flash of brilliance <laughs> or a lot of drinking one night and woke up and we're like, got it. We, get, we, we got the idea. It was, it was much more of a tedious, laborious process of, you know, we, we had built one company in the sales space already called Persist IQ. And that was to solve our own problem on, uh, call it outbound sales and starting conversations with folks that don't know you. There weren't really great systems built for that. We built it, um, great product. We ended up selling it. Um, but we were, so we had a lot of empathy for folks in sales, for sales organizations, and we were looking for new problems to solve. And we had built a couple of other products that started to get some traction with leadership, but the sales reps weren't using the product. And so we wanted to diagnose it and figure out why. And we had the opportunity to go shadow a bunch of different teams and a bunch of different account executives. And it was through that experience where we started to observe a bunch of small problems. And you could think of each one of them as a, as just a dot on a board. Individually, they seemed insignificant, but once you started putting them on the board and you started connecting some of the dots together, a, a picture slowly started to emerge. And, and for us, that was, you know, even in this crazy crowded space of sales technology and tools, most organizations have a CRM like Salesforce, right? Uh, they'll have some sort of email tool or a call tool for their reps. But if you actually look at how the reps work, it's not in the CRM. That's a tool for managers and for leadership to report on. Most reps that, that we ended up talking to have that, but they 
create what we call their own workspace, right? You, you take notes in Evernote, Mac notes, or OneNote or paper notebook. You manage your pipeline and accounts in a spreadsheet. Your tasks are all over the place. And that collectively we saw, or we saw what we called the workspace now, but we saw that at every organization. And we just step back and say, gosh, like, why doesn't something specific to a salesperson exist? Why is a salesperson, do you have to duct tape all this stuff together and then spend four to five hours a week doing extra work to show the work that you did just so your manager can forecast up and they can see where your deals are at. And even then, most managers are always complaining that the data in Salesforce is not great. Update your next steps, you know, update your med pick fields and, and what have you. And so we knew it was a problem, but then, you know, to your point earlier, we had no idea. Is there a business around this? Is it even worth solving? Many companies have tried. Why, why have they not succeeded? If it were easy, like you said, a bunch of folks would have done it. And, and that's where we learned kind of what our unique angle on the problem would be. Um, and that would be creating something, creating a product that it's not just about the functionality, but that it is so easy to use. And it is so intuitive that you could put it in front of any salesperson and within one minute, they're up and running. And so the effort to actually start using the product is low. And we figured that is the key to success or even having a shot at success in this space. Because most, most companies had failed because of that. They built the tech, but no one was using it. Interesting. So do you, uh, as you start cobbling something together, right? Is it, do you do it yourself? Do you throw it out on Upwork and just get somebody overseas to build a framework real quick? I mean, how does that even look? So we, you know, I was fortunate enough to have uh, an existing team. It was, you know, me and my co-founder and a few folks that were, were working with us at Persist IQ. And we had a great thing going and we all decided to, to run it again and, and work together again. But even then, even then we, we waited on building any product for a while because we had gone through that exercise before and then wasted months of our lives building something that just didn't get traction and didn't get used. And so the first thing we actually did is I started doing uh, outbound. I started doing sales to try to figure out, does, can I get any people to care about this thing? And if so, can I get them to commit to taking any sort of action? And so it actually was an exercise in storytelling. It was an exercise in understanding the problem and communicating that problem in a way that resonates and then crafting a solution that also resonated with somebody. And once we had that, then that actually informed what parts of the product we built. And that then informed what type of folks we might need to help build that product. Now, we fortunately, we had that already. But you know, to, to answer your question, like if, if we didn't have that, that's what I would have done, because then that could have helped me say, OK, now I know exactly what direction to go in and what what to build. Now, you know, is it a front end engineer? Do you need something more done on back end? Is it some UI UX work that you need done? Um, but because uh, otherwise you just end up spinning your wheels. Yeah. So do you, do you call some friends? Do you, do you cold call some businesses? Hey, do you have Salesforce? You, you want to hear an idea we haven't built yet? I mean, all the above focus group. You know? I mean, I, I, I'm a fan of direct outbound. And you find, you know, have a, have a thesis on who has this problem and, and just go direct, whether that's cold calling, whether that's emailing, LinkedIn, using your network, whatever it is, find a way to do it. 
and communicate the problem in a way. And, 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 and this is what I think is really important signal is actually experiment on your messaging. Because that right there gives you signal if they're responding. If you start getting 10 out of, if you reach out to 10 people and all 10 respond, are like, hey, tell me more. You're onto something, right? You haven't even talked about the problem or the, the product yet, but it tells you that, hey, you're, you're kind of fishing in a pond or you're, you're, you're going somewhere where people have, this problem is, is big enough for them where they're willing to respond to you and tell you that they want to learn a little bit more. That right there in this crazy crowded space, I mean, and not just sales tech. I mean, there's so many more software solutions to pretty much any problem now. Just the fact that you can capture somebody's attention is a pretty big deal. Got you. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, would uh, one of my clients, you know, would a CEO of a or a VP of sales, you know, $30 million company, 15 sales reps. I'm just trying to think through, like, would he take a call and say, yeah, I'll I'll prepay, you know, for this tool if it's mm-hmm. available within six months or would it be like, yeah, whatever, dude, call me when it's ready. I mean, you wouldn't do that on the cold call, though, right? Because you don't you don't go for a close on a cold call. Sure. All, and, and this is why it's important to know what signal you're looking for. All I'd be looking for there is, can I can I send a message that talks to a problem where he or she would would even respond? Then can I articulate in a way where he or she would give me 15 minutes of their time? Then can I actually describe it in a way where they'd want to lean in even more? And in that case, it could be, Hey, you know, Mr. And Mrs. Uh, sales leader, you have 15 reps on your team. They're probably spending, and studies are shown, they're probably spending 35% of their time selling. The rest of it is drag. What would the impact to your business be if we could change that from 35% to 45% to 50%? They're just getting more time in market. Would that be interesting? Or if you're hiring new reps where we could cut the ramp time down from three months down to two months. What would that have? What impact would that have on your business? And ultimately, it all flows down to the bottom line um, or top line. Like they're they're getting more revenue out of out of what they have, and, and they can see that. But I think th- that's enough to see. Okay, you've got my interest. Now tell me more, and then you can go from there. Listen, I can't have you be a mechanical engineer and a marketer and a salesperson. Okay, you gotta you gotta, you gotta <laughs> let me do the sales and marketing thing. Okay, you can't and you. <laughs> You're making me feel bad. Good grief. And I got to go get an engineer. Well, I didn't say I'm good at any of them. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good pitch, man. It's a good process. You know, um, and that's what I'm, I'm banging into the heads of my clients, you know, and it's, it's amazing how hard it is. But like I tell my son, I got to take my own advice, right? If, if they were good at it, there wouldn't be a need for me. Because <laughs> um, they, yeah, I think they usually do go too fast. Uh, they try to say too much. Uh, they don't understand the the baby steps uh, to move through this. You know, I I do this swim every year. We swim across Tampa Bay for the Navy SEAL Foundation and uh, to raise money. And and I remember my my buddy that he crossed commission from the Air Force to the Navy and became a SEAL. And you know, their motto is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Mm-hmm. You know, have a good stroke. You know, be be consistent with it. You know, and be smooth and, and that speed will come from being smooth and salespeople like trying to get them to understand that. 
Uh, they just want to go, 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 you know, close, close, close. I'm like, oh. Yeah. And, and I'd say it's not, it's not just salespeople, but I think a lot of founders and, and we, who in some way are, are the first salesperson in, in whatever they're doing. But, but I think not jumping to conclusions, being, being critical and challenging any assumptions, not making too many assumptions and, and really listening. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think in the early days, it's really important to trust, you know, come up with that process and trust it and move through that process as fast as you can. But that sometimes that means going slow on product until you know what you're, what you're even doing and why, and why it matters and how it's going to be different than stuff that's already out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it can, it can be tough. I mean, like your price point is very uh, attractive, but I imagine you probably have tougher meetings on what to leave out than what to include, huh? Our biggest challenge is, and I mean, it's one of the values at our company is simplicity, right? And, and it's back to what, what I mentioned earlier for, for our audience, which are, you know, high performing top sales reps. Um, the biggest thing is speed. And that comes to, to us, that comes through simplicity because I don't know many salespeople that are out there excited to try new tools of wanting to spend their time exploring new tools. It's more around, Hey, how can I be better at just getting to my quota and exceeding that quota faster? Cause that's how I make money. And if it's going to help me do that, great. Uh, but I don't want to spend an entire day poking, poking around a tool and trying to figure that thing out. And so in what we do, one of the hardest parts is design it's product design and, and how do you distill something down and make it so simple and so fast and so intuitive that you can hand it to somebody and they get it they don't need to be an expert in it but they get it and they can start using it now that becomes even harder when you have a you know a team of let's say 20 salespeople. everyone works differently some people are very detailed note takers other people's just take random bullet point notes that no one else would ever understand if they looked at those notes. Other people are very meticulous task takers and others never write a task down. They keep everything here, but they manage certain things in their pipeline. And so it becomes an even harder problem when then you have to solve for many different working styles and personas and, and people that process information in different ways. Again, this is the type of problem that, that I love to solve. And I, me and my co-founder and our team, we gravitate towards this stuff. But this just, there are multiple layers of complexity that we have to address so that the users that use our product in a way, they, they don't ever see it to them. It just feels simple to them. It just feels like it works. Um, but that means that we've done our job well. So when will there be a, a scratch pad uh, rocket to go into space? Cause that's what all the <laughs> founders are doing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, good question. I, 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 I could pretty confidently say, I don't think anytime in the near future, we, you know, we know our, our lane and we're staying in that right now. Um, I think once we start seeing salespeople in space, which, Hey, that may happen sooner rather than later, then, then we'll be right there with them. But, you know, I, I think in, there are millions of people around the world that have this profession, you know, they're, they're building, whether it's their career or whether it's an entry point into what will be a career that goes on into something else. But I think sales is, is a really important profession in the world. I don't think it's going away. 
Um, even with all this, you know, people are claiming AI is coming in and it's going to change. I, I think there's there's a human to human connection aspect to it that I think is is important and is here for a while. Um, and I just don't think there's great technology that's been built for for the people on the front lines. And I think that that's what we're all about. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so I'm linking to your site. So scratchpad.com and then um, they can go to forward slash jobs if they're interested. But this is yep. for um, salesforce.com users, right? Today, that's right. So if you're using salesforce.com um, and you have any complaints about it being slow to load or requiring too many clicks or not absolutely loving using it, then that's a perfect reason to, uh, to give Scratchpad a try. Okay. Uh, and I mean, despite the rumors, you'll, you, you will let it work on Android, right? You won't like just kill it because, because you're, your old Apple days. Right? No, we actually, yeah. So we don't even have a native um, mobile application just yet. We're that's certainly on the, on the roadmap at some point. Um, it's, it's primarily web-based. So you could actually access it from an Android or, or iOS browser. It's not optimized for that experience, but most, again, this came from observations where most sales reps today, at least the ones that we're solving for, um, aren't in the field. Now COVID has actually impacted that as well, but it's primarily okay. for folks that are, um, you know, on in front of a computer. Um, although we, we do have quite a few users using it on an iPad and, uh, and a mobile phone as well. Do you think we're going to get back to pre-COVID levels of face-to-face selling or is this remote video stuff here to stay? I think, I think both are true and I think both can exist. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of organizations that maybe were on the fence about inside sales basically had to find a way to make it work through, through COVID. Um, and I think some were probably surprised and saying, hey, we can actually make this work. And others that had it figured out a way to optimize it even more um, and maybe recognize that, you know, you don't actually have to go for every single deal and be out in the field. But I do think in some ways, certain certain pockets or for certain types of deals, yeah, it may actually accelerate. Maybe face-to-face becomes even more important. Um, now, whether it becomes more or less on the face-to-face side, I, I don't know, because I think we maybe new things will pop up around that of like, the types of meetings that, that might be required. But I, I do think, I don't think it's going away in terms of getting actually people getting together face-to-face. And, and I guess even face-to-face, you could argue is, does that mean big enterprise sales? Or that could even just be smaller localized pockets because organizations now have, you know, sales, um, smaller sales offices located around the country. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just- doing my first keynote in a long time speaking in Orlando in a, a couple of months. And, uh, you know, those guys, they said they're, they're excited about getting together. Yeah. You know, about 175 salespeople. I uh, saw that like national speakers association, they're meeting in person. Uh, so, uh, and I've got clients, you know, out actually traveling in California doing get togethers and people are excited to meet. So, um, you know, I've always said we're, we're social beings, you yeah. know, so people crave that interaction to, to some degree, um, even if it means having to meet with a greedy salesperson, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that that perception is is, uh, is changing. Um, we, yeah. we probably spent hours just talking about that. But but I, I do agree. I, I think 
certain uh, in-person meetings and get-togethers will come roaring back. Some already have, uh, but I think once things open up even more and, or, and, you know, this is in our more confidently in our rear view mirror than, than, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Did I, did I skip anything? Anything I should have asked? Boy, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, <laughs> it's what no. I do. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, this is great. I, I appreciate you having me. Really enjoyed the the conversation. Well, thanks for coming on. Congrats on the on the move back to the Midwest. We're uh, we're flying to Texas this weekend. Actually, to we've lived out here seventeen years. My wife's from here, but uh, we moved from Texas. So we shall see. It's a hectic time. It's uh, yeah. Everything's well, being souped up. Double. You know, you almost have to like just buy something sight unseen, and I'm not willing to do that. So. We shall see. But, yeah, well, we're wishing you the best of luck on that um, and, and safe travels. But yeah, thanks again for having me. Really, uh, really enjoyed this. All righty. Thank you, sir. Puyan Salehi, all the way from Minnesota, founder of scratchpad.com. Have a great day. Thanks so much. So you hear it all the time, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable, but it's true. Um, but it's hard to do on your own. You know, you've heard me talk about jujitsu now since January of 2017. It's a great way to get uncomfortable. You're surrounded by great people. Uh, hopefully you find a great great school, you know, a great instructor, and they push you. Um, I was in Newport last week, and I went uh, trained out there with a friend of mine who moved. And so, you know, it's an hour and 15 away, so it's too far for him to travel back to our school. So I trained with him. Um, the instructor there was another fifth-degree black belt, and we trained hard, and their mats were different. Oh, my gosh. And I realized at the end I had just burned off my skin on my right foot on two places and was bleeding in a third. Oh, I was a wreck. But it was good. It was great training. Um, it was wonderful training with another instructor just to see how things are done uh, a little differently. A, a lot was the same, uh, but there were some nuances, and those were, were good to see. Uh, but I wouldn't have tra- I wouldn't have trained that hard without, you know, being on my own. Uh, so having those people around me, uh, people below me, that I actually was able to coach a little bit as we rolled, uh, and then rolling with higher belts, I learned from them. So you know, surround yourself with people that are going to push you. Uh, that's how you get comfortable being uncomfortable. And you know what? Honestly, sometimes you're not comfortable being uncomfortable, but you've got the right folks around you, and they push you through those tough spots. It's the only way to grow. And yeah, you're either growing or dying. The world's always changing. So cryptocurrencies and labor shortages and BS with COVID and stupid government officials, um, they ensure things change. So, you know, who's pushing you through these tough times that are always going to be popping up? That's why I've got the Sell More of Everything program. That's why I've got private coaching, small group coaching I can do with your own team. So get somebody to push you through the tough times, all right? Uh, Because they don't go away. You just get better. You get better or you get gone. It's just how it is. So... You know, you can get the training on demand, makeeverysale.com, or you can join our group 
ask questions every day in the group, ask questions live on Mondays, uh, sellmoreofeverything.com. All right? You will get better. I guarantee it. I'll go sell something.